the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons, welcome back for another Tenuous Links Golf Podcast, home of the Golf Barons, playing these days, well, all over the shop, including on select Etihad flights. Today on the show we mark the return of an old favourite guest of ours, our head of production, the great man Dav. Welcome back. Back by unpopular demand, gentlemen. Good to be here. And Grumpy Phil is here too. Back by necessity, Dav. It's not popular (laughs) demand, it's just that Shu and I were getting extremely bored with what each other had to say. And we had to go somewhere. Kipper, Kipper's needed, had enough of it. You us. needed someone to mock. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, boys, I want to. I want a bit of a throwback. I want to start this um, this podcast with love. Uh, something, something that really warmed the heartstrings for me. Uh, watching the Wyndham Championship, which is you know the last event before the FedEx Cup, and the players scrambling everywhere to try and get into the playoffs, into the top one twenty five. But Chesson Hadley. Now we feel we've talked a while or quite a lot about uh, about firsts in golf and how you can continue to have firsts and how how it's always something else to celebrate. And Chesson Hadley, his first ace, not just on the PGA Tour, it was his first hole in one that he's ever had, and it was it was unbelievable to see him. Um, the excitement with which he was filled. Uh, the interview he had with Amanda Bellionis is one you should go and check out if you haven't. But just a quick quote from him afterwards and he was he was absolutely beaming that was my first hole in one ever that is not a joke i'm 34 and played pro golf for like 11 years and that was my first one and you saw the excitement of him and it was i don't know it was just very one of those cool moments for mine um it is amazing how much passion he still had like he's fought he's hit some lows um and he's still pursuing victory and it has come the whole way back and he's pursuing victories and all these other things but it, it he is just passion. He loves it. I mean, you can clearly see that he he loves it at that elite level. And the excitement they get from these little wins, um, and maybe that's the point, is be wary of the early hole-in-one in your golfing career because it's one less thing. It, it's one great thing to brag about, but it's one less thing to look forward to. That's it. But the, just the excitement, the celebration of him, you know, jumping up and down, the hooting and hollering, it just shows there's always... There's all, there'll always be another first around the corner in this game. I, I remember getting my first birdie, uh, one of three in my uh, illustrious career, and and my after I after the celebrations died down, I remember thinking, geez, I had to hit four of the my best shots ever to get just a birdie. I may never do that again. I don't know how I'm ever going to repeat that. So, so it was just to clarify, it was a par five, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a par five. <laughs> yes. Subsequently, Correct. he snuck in by one spot into that FedEx Cup standing, so into 125th uh, to, to keep his dream alive, I suppose, after Justin Rose dropped out on the last hole. So poor old Justin Rose missed a five-footer for par and dropped to 126. No FedEx Cup for you. But it does happen, and I suppose if we're dealing with loves, um, you know, just if we deal with the weekend, the, the Corn Ferry Tour final event, which was a pinnacle, something to do with a pinnacle bank or, or um, in the US, I think it could be the greatest golf event that you've got to see where these guys, unlike the PGA Tour, what interested me was Adam Scott needs to have a really high finish, having probably not been, without being nasty, potentially not being motivated by a lot during a a season of golf, realise he has to have a high finish because it's more than money and then all of a sudden turns on the the afterburners and shows everyone exactly how good 
he is. But this Corn Ferry Tour final, the Pinnacle Bank um, Championship or Open or whatever it was called, these these young and old guys alike, uh, one playing to be able to stay on the Corn Ferry Tour to the top 75. Secondly, this countdown to the top 25 who get PGA Tour cards and watching the combinations and permutations of if he birdies this hole, then these three drop out, these two come in to the top 25 and all of a sudden their lives change dramatically. Um, You know, if he holds this for Eagle on the 18th, then again, unfortunately that means these three will will drop out and these three will, will come in. It's an extraordinary event that is pure excitement. And if only they actually got the really good commentators and put this event on a, on a cracking golf course, it, it could be one of the great events um, of the year because it's the battlers that we're all hoping deliver. It's one of those things where every seemingly every shot has a consequence to it. It absolutely does. Um, from, from small chip shots, from lipped-out putts, from... Um, you know, guys who are, are, you know, shoot four over in the last round um, that that just miss to just make. It's extraordinary that every single shot, as you say, has a consequence. And it's very few events during the year that, that I can play well that means that I can not only determine my future, but determine someone else's. Because the two guys that were on the bubble on 24 and 25 to get PGA Tour cards both missed the cut. A guy from 44 wins the event. So all of a sudden he bumps the whole way up and these two who were just praying for people to play badly. <laughs> um, I, I just, I, I, I love it as much as I hate changing my mind. And if, um, if I can just deal with a, a quick hate, I hate changing my mind on um, that, that golf under tight conditions and we'll call them COVID type conditions. How dare golf be banned? You know, look out, we're social distancing, we're social distancing, and you're watching things spiralling out of control, and I'm here going, how dare golf can't be banned in New South Wales when it seems like just make the sacrifices that are required <laughs> so we can get back to filming season three. <laughs> I think there's, a, there's an element of, uh, ele- element of jealousy there, Phil, that they're all still playing golf and you're locked it down in cold old Vic. <laughs> yeah. it's a, isn't it a sip and shuffle? Is that what it was? A sip, a sip, a... <laughs> <laughs> sip and shuffle. Sorry, that's right. <laughs> I was just going to throw in a quick love, gentlemen. Um, a quick love by way of a uh, family plug. My, my eldest daughter turned seven recently and with the great help of of philbert uh and that narrowed her birthday gift down to a set of uh, a set of kids golf clubs and i must say she's she's tried soccer she's tried basketball she's tried a range of sports but there hasn't been a smile on her face as as bright as the one where she made contact pure contact with a golf ball for the first time it was uh it was it was pretty special so that is even at that age Knowing the difficulty of a golf swing and how to hit a golf ball, you could see it that she was she was pretty proud of herself. So that's pretty cool. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Nice one. Has she got you covered yet, Dave? Oh yeah, well and truly, Welcome. well and truly. I'm standing there giving her tips, going, I'm not the right person for this job. <laughs> so she gets the eight foot quicks to net, Dave, and you still get the eight meter quicks to net. Is that yeah, kind of how the Cor- backyard Cor- is set up. Correct. Correct. Well, welcome to golf. I say welcome to golf because there is nothing as exciting as your first well-struck shot. And Ben Hogan used to talk about there's nothing more motivating than getting out on a practice fairway and hitting, hitting hard, but hitting them out of the middle shot after shot after shot as one of the great pleasures um, of the game. So she's um, moved one step closer and one step closer than a lot of us have with a <laughs> yeah, well-struck shot. And I'm going to give her a little bit of advice here because this is my hate and this is something to avoid going forward for your lovely little, lovely young one. 
arm lock putters, Phil. I hate arm lock putters. I particularly dislike seeing them um, or seeing legends of the game pick them up or, or start playing around with them. And I, of course, I speak of Phil Mickelson recently seen tinkering with the with the longer shaft and um, arm lock grip. I think it was a super stroke wrist lock. Those one of those ones. I mean, Phil's always been a tinkerer. I get that, and and you know he he changes his putters and drivers and all the rest of it. But I just I can't stand these things, Phil. Like we we made the decision to get rid of them. Or not we, but the PGA made the decision. We're getting rid of um, anchoring. Are these not? Is this just not anchoring without anchoring? Just getting around the rule, sort of on a technicality. Am, am I wrong? Um, look, the reality is we've we've touched on this a bit and there's been a lot of debate around arm lock and it's not anchoring until they change the rule that say nothing can touch you above your wrist um, and, and it would be as simple as that as a rule change it's just a, a golf club cannot touch you above the wrist um, the the problem you've got there then is that when you grip a club down to the bottom of the grip which touch players like me um, all the other fills like to do then you've got an increased likelihood that at some point in time that the grip is going to be resting above your wrist. But but from a putting point of view with, with the putter, if it could not touch above your wrist, then everything's fixed. So so take out take out the the technicality and the semantic oh. argument. Do you think it is just another way of anchoring? Cutting out all the rest of it, is it is it anchoring? Is it a form of anchoring? While you're thinking about that, I'll just think about a lot of the players who were anchorers before it was banned. Um, the Keegan Bradleys, Matty Matt Kuchar, um, who else? Webb Simpson, I think was was a big one. They faded for a while, for quite a while, and have started to come back once the arm lock sort of became a thing. I'm just saying that yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, no, but Will uh, Will Zalatoris quite clearly uh, would say that that the arm lock is part of his uh, solution. It's part of his putting solution. Um, what I would love to know, and I think I've proposed this previously, so I'm sorry and apologies to both of you, um, and I'm not talking about the people on the podcast with me, I'm talking about the listeners. I would love to see an event that was a, a, a putt-off where everyone had to use a normal putter because I'd love to know what, how bad their strokes can actually be. I'd love to know what a yip looks like for a Will Zalatoris, if it is a yip. Or if he actually is a really good putter, he's just forgotten that he is because he doesn't have the courage to um, go back to where it was. It's interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure. I hate the arm lock. I hate the look of it. Um, if golf make, if it makes golf easier for 100,000 people playing the game, am I happy with it? Yeah. You know what? I think I'm, I'm happy with it for them. But then at the same time, would you bring back anchored putting then if it makes it easier for people? That's my point. If you're going to, my, my only point is if you're going to ban anchoring, then ban all anchoring. That That's it. Um, well, we don't ban anchoring as people are preparing to play club championships. When they put their handbrake on and they start to drag the anchor around and all of a sudden they, they five-putt the last seven greens to go out one shot. No, I, think, <laughs> I, I think that's wankering. <laughs> uh, it could be. It's damn well bloody cheating, but we're not here to talk about cheating. Anyway, look, I don't know. I, I, it's not ideal, but what do you do about it? It's, it's an interesting problem that, people have created a solution for and I think that's one of the great things about golf is that designers and people think about the game enough to go out of different ways to to create different putting strokes or different grips um that's a lot Carsten Solheim made a business on rethinking problems I think golf's got a massive problem um and Dave this 
you know, being a newer golfer, this will be in your wheelhouse. And that's, golf wants to continue to talk about how inclusive it is. And as we've spoken about before, I believe it is the most inclusive, exclusive game in the world where whatever way you want to play the game, you play it. So, Dev, when you go and have a hit, where do you normally get out and play it? Um, it, it sort of varies. It depends on who I'm playing with but um, and where they live in terms of proximity. But we commonly head up to Kyneton to play with a friend of ours that lives in Bendigo. Um, I also play at... Um, I play at uh, Ivanhoe quite a bit, Bundura quite a bit. Um, so public, and, public golf. Yeah, course. all public courses. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a public golf course. Yarrabend. Uh, Yarrabend. There's a public golf course in um, that eastern suburbs of, of Melbourne course, Freeway Golf Course. It's about to be closed for two years as mm-hmm. they um, create a, another massive freeway. Hey, the irony. Um, <laughs> I've played it. But, but one of the challenges of now is you can play golf Anywhere you want and you can wear what you want. So if you're going to play at a private club, you know, we talk about golf being exclusive and inclusive. If you want to play at a private club um, and you have to dress up, you can do that. If you want to play public and you want to dress down, you can also do that. So what impact will supply and demand have on the game of golf? And I propose that from a couple of fronts. One is that at the moment, private clubs have waiting lists that are extreme. And they're all growing because golf's gone nuts. So what's the logical conclusion based on the laws of supply and demand if I'm a private club and I've got a waiting list? Fees go up. Fees go up. So as fees go up, if we just deal with that in isolation, if fees go up, does it include or pre- or exclude more people? It, <laughs> it excludes more people, it excludes I would have thought. So, so at a very minimum, when we talk about private golf clubs, as the game grows in popularity it by design and by its nature is going to become more exclusive because I only have 18 holes and I have a certain number of members that I need to be able to get tea times for every Saturday or every Sunday or during the week. So therefore my only thing I can do to try and not, not well, I guess it is to discourage members is to put my fees up because people aren't just going to hang on for 10 years. So then golf becomes more exclusive. So that's step one. But these, these private these private clubs, Phil, they are businesses though. They are there to make a profit. Of course they are. So you, you can't yeah, you can't blame them for you know, if if courses are, are closing down or of supplies um, increasing, you know, reducing the number of courses while demand to play them stays the same as we're sort of seeing now. Um, of course they're gonna they're gonna jack their prices up and their obligation is not necessarily to the game of golf, their obligation no. is to their members and to the, the golf course there is. Yeah. So all of a sudden, a, a, a private golf club in Melbourne goes from having uh, 18 months ago, no waiting list, to now having waiting list of 12 months, 18 months, two years. Um, gee, there's a lot of people on the waiting list. Um, okay, so, so what do we do? We know there's people desperate to get in. I wonder what the sweet spot is of how much they're prepared to pay. You throw on top of that freeway golf course closing, for a couple of years, which takes a whole lot of public golfers who then say, well, we now need to, Dave, we need to go to play Bundura or we need to go and play Ivanhoe, but we've only got a limited number of tea times. Moore Park in Sydney, with a discussion around Moore Park, you look at Vic Park in Queensland, which may well have been closed as part of their Olympics agenda to create a BMX park. Um, thank God BMXing is still in the Olympics, a topic for another time. But you talk about Vic Park in, in Queensland, Northcote Golf Course, again, getting back to 
to Melbourne. If we think on a global scale, there are five public golf courses currently in Toronto under extreme pressure and under review um, locally that, that potentially will mean that two or three of them may close. Now, golf is going through a massive boom at the moment, but let's start taking away some of the supply of tea times. Mm. Well, hang on, I need, but I still want to play golf. Well, I'm going to go and put my name down in a private course. Well, we put our fees up. Okay, well, now I've, it's just a question of how desperately I am to play it because if he's prepared to pay 2000 and I'm prepared to pay 3000 or she, Kipper, um, then, then all of a sudden the waiting list goes to user pays and who's prepared to pay. Before you know it, golf becomes the most inclusive game in the world whilst we're desperate for it to be inclusive. Yeah, my feeling is we just we don't give the average public golf course its fair recognition for what it does to drive golf in this country. Like, and we're probably as guilty as any any other media in that regard. We often, you know, focus on the Royal Melbournes and and the the Pinehursts and you know those sorts of courses. But but you don't fall in love with the game because of those because you've played those courses. You you're well and truly in love with the game before you get there. You know, you grow up playing, you know, Burnley, Albert Park, Dad mentioned Ivanhoe, um, Tatchewan Lakes, and and freeway golf. Phil, that you talked about, that's just in Victoria. That's where we cut our teeth. And if if we lose. If we're losing these courses, we're going to lose a huge portion of golf. And and to your point, it's it's almost a it's almost a convergence in the market, like a negative convergence, where like is the market going to sustain itself, or will 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 the demand mm-hmm. by which I mean the playing demand will will that dry up as it becomes that more exclusive as you as you talk about, and will people leave because they can't get on a course or play as often as they'd like. That, that's sort of my that's my concern around this. That we're going to lose a lot of people in a time when we should be, when it should be. Well, it is growing. So, Dave, you lose three of the golf courses that you normally play at. Do you go hunting for more golf courses, or is there a point where you say, maybe indoor golf's for me? Maybe this is. Mm. I'm all about X golf. Oh well, yeah. That I mean, that's a that's an option, um, definitely to get a to get my fix. But um, I think I I definitely do go hunting if if the three or four courses that I'm familiar with close down I, I guess the the issue is that um, I mean the I've got the benefit of being able to get out on a public course midweek during the day when it's quiet but but very few people have that so the the window of time that people want to play and want to access a public course is is the is the problem I guess that's that's peak and there's just so many people you can fit onto a course. Um, at that particular time, so yeah, it's it's. I'm not sure what what the solution is. You can't just throw up a new golf course <laughs> to meet the demand, which is why we need to not let them close. Yes, down if we can. that's this right. Is the whole, yeah. This is the whole point, Dev. Is that you're right? We, we can't just throw one up. But but if you look at the and what I'll delightfully call the the tree huggers and the uh, environmental terrorists that are going around demanding that that golf courses are closed because golf is a snobby inclu- exclusive game. And not for the people. Well, the reality is, is that a Northcote Park, um, as an example, Northcote Park Golf Course is absolutely a game for the people. And that by, mm. by claiming that the game of golf is too inclusive and therefore you close the courses, actually makes the game more exclusive. And it actually yeah. forces... It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's it? right. And it forces golf into a position. And now we look at, um, you know... Uh, par three golf courses and, and Studley Park again we're just dealing in Melbourne at the moment but but Studley Park is a par three golf course that's down here run down um, uh, and and really 
uh, unkempt. And he's the next one prime to be taken back by a council and converted into parkland that, as we've spoken about before with, with Northcote, won't be maintained to the level that public golf courses are uh, maintained and therefore the, the grass will get to ankle high as opposed to, you know, beautifully pristine. But those players are going to have to go and look for somewhere else to play golf or potentially be lost to the game of golf. And then there's a flow-on impact um, of that, which then flows through to uh, it flows through to retail, popularity and TV consumption, sponsorship. Um, and then as that dies off, more courses close. So golf becomes even more exclusive. Um, so, so is therefore what Topgolf did on the Gold Coast one of the smartest steps that could ever have been taken, which is to say in Asia, particularly in Korea and Japan, golf is a driving range game. It's not a golf course game because it's too expensive and land is too... Um, well, and, and I think that's, that's the other point is that if, if you're someone that... I mean, I think about you know, introducing people in my family to the game of golf... You know, people that, that work full time and have never played. My wife being a perfect example of that. She's she's not going to want to come out and play with me at eight a.m. on a Saturday when there's a million people at the course watching her swing a golf club for the first time. So I think those driving ranges and the ex golfs kind of become more important. She'd be far more comfortable to do that in that environment. Um, where she can embarrass herself and get familiar with the game, and not have to do it with with the gallery. You know, um, snickering and poking fun, even though they they wouldn't have they wouldn't couldn't care less, obviously. But that's like how we perceive yeah, exactly. that 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 situation. The thing for me is the driving range concept. It's a great idea, and it's is as Dave said, it's a great place to go and relax and and have a crack. I don't think it can replace golf, not for Australia. I get how how popular this stuff is in in Asia, but Australians are used to and and crave the the outdoors and the space. So so the driving range golf, I don't know. I don't know if that's sustainable long term as a solution. I think it's certainly a part of the solution. I just can't see it being the be all and end all. Yes, hence getting back to the original point about this being golf's biggest problem is that it isn't. It's it's a pastime or something you do for fun. But our our teeth were cut on walking around fairways and, and hanging out. And this the idea of escapism, we don't escape to a driving range. We go to a driving range to practice hit balls and maybe have a beer if it, it's top golf. But the escapism is being around nature and surrounded by it. So when it comes back to the edict around the PGA or Golf Australia more specifically, the obligation to try and keep public courses open against this groundswell of close them, close them, it's land that could be used for parkland remains and is quite clearly the biggest problem that the game has got. It's not about engagement or attention. It's not about growing in particular markets or growing old men, young men, old women, young women, girls, boys or otherwise. It doesn't matter, yeah. That that is actually irrelevant if they don't have the places to play. Um, And so there will be a point where everyone says, well, I'm going to go private or nothing. Or they just say, you know what, I, I can't afford it. So I'm going to find... Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're spot on. I think golf gets thrown into the too hard basket when it gets to that point. People can't get on and play where they want to or it's too expensive and they'll just leave the sport and find something else to play or to do. We talk a lot about golf being sticky or trying to find its stickiness, but it can't can't be sticky if there's an undersupply of glue. And... and hey? <laughs> <laughs> nice one. And, you know, to, to add to your point, Phil, earlier about, you know... Um, Golf courses are nice because of golf, not because, 
you know, the, the parklands are not going to stay the same when golf leaves the building, so to speak. But but the other thing is this assumption that the parkland will stay. M- most of these golf courses are in pretty valuable real estate areas and the assumption that they're not going to just turn into housing uh, with maybe a, a few swings and a, and a couple of patches of grass to kick a football, <laughs> it's, you, you don't have one without the other. It's, um, it's, a, it's an odd mindset. Yeah. And we're seeing that more and more. And I suppose um, to that point, there's another element of, and particularly given what's going on at the moment with, apparently there is a pandemic. Um, and just so you know, the Wuhan coffers have got new uniforms for the next season. Um, but there's a there's an emotional well-being that comes from people who've, who've been playing on these golf courses for either a short amount of time because they needed the escapism, they needed some place to bond, or a long amount of time. And I know that um, there's a golf course called Oakley that was effectively on the on the brink and Sandy Jamison's done some enormous work there trying to bring the game back to the people and promote what public courses do and what they are. But it, it remains golf's biggest problem. And I'm not sure there's a point that, that Golf Australia have got any control over this. This is the, the concern that I've got is that this is at a level above them where a councillor is there saying, no, upkeep is this and return is this. I don't care about emotional well-being. You know, I'll, I'll set up a, a a a shed because that'll be do. We'll just we'll paint it some bright colours and we'll just call it a shed where people can get together and talk, um, or we'll just get them to walk around a park. So there's this there's this major thing that that a number of people, particularly campaigning um, in Sydney, are missing about the point of public golf. And I'm my concern is I'm not sure that that Golf Australia or any governing body, being Golf Canada or otherwise, can do anything about it short of subsidising the facilities. I share your concern though, Phil, because we've seen, we've been talking about how golf has had this massive expansion, but getting rid of these courses or or taking these courses, the public courses away from people, it's such a negative market driver for this supply and demand argument. You know, that is the retraction in places to play, shall we say, is is causing, or it will cause uh, over time, it will create that supply issue it's not the rapid expansion in demand, I suppose, is what I'm saying. It's and getting new people into play. It's that you're you're taking one away rather than a lot more coming in. And when they're both happening at the same time, it's just it's going to blow up very quickly. We know less competition is bad for any market. You know, there's another problem that golf's got, and we might have touched on this a bit, but I, I really I, I need to I need to go back here because Stacey Lewis made some comments ahead of the Scottish Open this week that I thought were really pertinent uh, and fascinating, and it's around speed of play um, and before I get on to a couple of comments so so last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago at the, the WGC whenever it was Bryson and Harris English got warned for slow play I think maybe six or seven holes in we're, we're told they're on the clock um, so we're on the clock for 10 holes and funnily enough didn't get penalised um, if we go back to the Olympics in the in the women's event at the Olympics the second last group was holding up the last group and there was a conversation around the fact that Nellie Corder likes to play fast because she's modern and that's the way things are done and was waiting on um, every shot. And then we saw in the um, in the final event of this Corn Ferry Tour, there was a guy called Marty Dow who ended up playing, coming second, um, hit his tee shot off a hole, couldn't find his ball, and so they jump him on a cart to drive back to the tee. Is there anything, by the way, more frustrating than a group in front of you, someone coming back to the tee to hit a another ball because they didn't play a provisional anyway you know my feeling on the stroke and distance penalty anyway yes i do it needs to be scrapped that hey that will speed up play everywhere throughout the golf world if we um 
Now, I may have a dog in this fight, but um, <laughs> we do. We need to get rid of that stroke and distance. Anyway, I don't... Or band it. drivers. But anyway, getting back to Stacey Lewis. So, so she said, gosh, I remember first time on tour, I played slow. You just never never keep up with them. It's the little things. If you're first to hit, you need to walk faster and go get to your ball. And if you're last to hit, you'd better be pulling at a club when the person is hitting. As a general warning shot, like slow play, come on. And even Sophia Popoff who won last year's Open, you know, honestly, half the time I can't believe how slow it is and I wish, you know, I'm not a rules official. I don't know what would help and what would be the easiest way to combat it. I'm not a rules official, but I definitely feel like there is something done about it to make it more enjoyable. Now, let's, I just want to get this, I'm not a rules official. 1957, I'm going to paint you a picture, August 13th, in fact, August 12th, 1957. Okay, no, 12th, all right, yeah. It was the 12th, not the 13th. Picture Royal Melbourne, Dev. The Liquor Industry Purse, which is now called the Royal Melbourne Purse, a great event, a, a limited field event, played for pros, 1957. Did yep. you get the year? I did. 1957. What year is it now? It's 2021, I believe. So, right. So we're talking about slow play in professional golf. So on August 12th, 1957, at the Liquor Industry Purse at Royal Melbourne Golf Course, on the East Course, a man by the name of Jeff Giles, sorry, a great man, by the name of Jeff Giles, a 22-year-old travelling golf professional, got penalised for slow play because at a point in time, his group had, and largely because of him apparently, had fallen a couple of holes behind the group in front. When they finished, they'd caught up. But they were penalised, and he was penalised not only by two officials, but two officials who also happened to be competing on the day. He was penalised two shots for slow play in the first slow play penalty in a professional tournament. On record, penalised two shots. Both the people who penalised him, who were competitors, not just officials, both ended up finishing ahead of him. Cost him 15 pounds, which was a fair bit of coin back then. So playing partners or or other players effectively penalised him for slow play in 1957. Is there a time? Is there a time limit in professional golf? Excuse my ignorance, but do can you literally sit there for an hour? Or do you, there is a there is a time limit, isn't it? Forty five seconds, I think, for oh. a shot, Phil. Yeah, but, but it's never. In, the problem is, it's the enforcement. Yeah, well, that it's part it's of the, issue. the enforcement. Thing. And at, at what point? At what point does your shot start? So just you could walk slower to your ball. You could like there's all these little tricks and things that, that you could do. But it's it's an issue that we all obviously. Sorry, Phil, had you finished your no, story? No, but it, it, so it's just drifted what off. I was going to propose as one of my game changers is that rather than all the players pointing the finger at rules officials, what if the power was given to the players? to penalise players for slow play and to warn players for slow play. Now, yes, it might result in some punch-ons. <laughs> this is awesome because it also you leads to... You have been drinking. It leads to my idea of getting Conor McGregor into the game as a spokesperson. <laughs> you, so, so Harris English says to Bryson, you're too slow. Well, get over it. No, I won't get over it. This is your last warning. If you don't speed up, it's a two-shot penalty because Harris English wasn't slow. Bryson was slow. But their group's the one. I listened to Stacey, uh, Stacey Lewis and heard her comments. And, and I actually, I agree with her that applying penalty strokes for slow play is something that we need to do. But we really need to be careful that, that it's applied to the individual players who are slow, not to the group. Because as you're pointing out, you could have a quick guy playing with a slow guy and they both get, and traditionally they've both been put on the clock. And it, that's it's kind of ridiculous. Um, and it also has to be applied equally across the field, not just based off a feeling or a bit of randomness or, or something along those lines. But I think the randomness might be enough. 
because if we go back to the precedent that was set in 1957, it did appear to be largely random. Oh, by the way, there's no appeal. So as two, these two, what I'll describe as reasonable players, uh, one of them was Ozzy Pickworth, um, penalised uh, Jeff. Oh, no, there's no appeal. We just said it's a two-stroke penalty. So mob rule you're in favour of. Okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> but nothing else is being done. And so rather than complain about it, so effectively for 64 years, even Johnny Miller's comment around at the US Open, um, going back to when it was 1993, when he subtly made that comment about Jack Nicklaus, um, 64 years, and we're still sooking and whinging about how slow tour players are, yet 64 years earlier, two blokes said, you know what, you're too slow, two-stroke penalty, bad luck, you're... Uh, oh, well, we finished ahead of you, you beauty. It wouldn't take much. Now, in your game changer, Phil, is there an octagon on every hole or just in the car park? <laughs> I haven't yet worked out the detail of whether gloves... So, so I mean, they've already got gloves, but whether they would have to have gloves on both hands, whether they should be a little bit padded. Um, is it a no-choke? Um, or is it, you know, you only get one strike? I, I'm not, like, I Can don't... I, it would be fair to say I hadn't thought about it that much. But I, I've been the purveyor of <laughs> some of the dumbest and worst game changers that have ever graced this podcast, Phil, but I swear you have shot right to the top with that. No, I'm not, so, okay. Utter let, rot. If, if I may backpedal for a second, I'm not promoting violence. What I'm promoting is that if we're leaving it to the rules officials who are weak as piss and don't want to implement the rules as they are written, then at some point in time, as happened in 1957, we might need to re- rely on the players to, one, make each other accountable, without personality clashes, because I'm sure Brooks would never penalise Bryson if they were both in contention in an event. <laughs> I think, you've, I think but, you're finding the holes in your argument as we... I understand the weaknesses in the point, but 1957 and we're still talking about this crap and the commentators are still going on about it and I'm still going on about it, which is pissing me off. Stacey Lewis is realising how important speed of play is for the future of the game, for engagement of TV audiences and for people wanting to go and play it. You talk to anyone about why they hate the game, oh, that it's just too slow. Why would you never watch TV? And, oh, it's just too slow. So the players who are happy to be bullies will now dictate who gets penalty shots and who doesn't. Now, this is... I can't see what could possibly go yeah. wrong. <laughs> but I, I think in, in other sports, uh, opposing players do try to make their opponents accountable when the rules are clearly defined. You, you see it in every sport. The other team complaining to referees when there's, you know, this or that. So, you know, I think part of the issue has to be that the rules are not clearly defined or are not, like, front of mind. If it was, if it was this is the time limit, this is when it starts... Well, I think you know other other opponents would be would be counting down the clock and getting to a point going, what's going on here? Why why isn't this person being penalised for for going over over time every time? And it gets back to that shot clock event that they used to run in the European Tour that that due to the Wuhan coffers uh, has gone missing, or maybe due to public interest because deep down the players didn't like the fact they were put on the clock. But I'll tell you, if, if you've got <laughs> Rolex... Eight-second challenge. You get Rolex or Targ. Yeah, the eight-second <laughs> challenge, that's exactly right. Now, that might have been a bit quick. But you get Rolex or Targ with a massive oversized clock, like Flavor Flav, uh, one yes. Flavor Flav walking behind every group with a huge clock around his neck, where as soon as they get to the ball, he presses the timer on the clock and sticks <laughs> around. And then all of a sudden, you've got the hip-hop culture. You've got <laughs> trap golf running into it. But, with, but I guess, like, I mean, I didn't even... Not to, to, to take away... 
from the game of golf, but I didn't even know that there was a time limit between serves in tennis growing up watching tennis. It didn't become a thing until the Rafa Nadals of this world started pushing the limits of it. And now it, it happens all the time. that you, you They cut to the clock, you see it counting down. He needs to get his serve in or he's going to get a warning. And so I, I think... Oh, the, warning. Ooh. No, no, no. But like it'll he'll be penalised the point. I don't, I, don't, I don't know the rules. If it happens immediately or if he gets a warning and then the next infraction... He, he loses the point. And the shot clock's become something that is being spread across mm. a lot of different sports. You see that in even with AFL now. You see that with the um, shots on goal. And I think I think there's a, there is that element in sport across the world that we need to quicken it up to keep interests alert and, and alive. Um, golf seems to be the one. I, we feel like we've been talking about this forever. And we have. We have. <laughs> The, the, the other sport that's that's farcical around clock would have to be soccer. Having watched the Matildas play at the Olympics, this arbitrary notion of extra time that the umpire just has in their head and uh, decides, well, I'm, yeah, let them have another crack. I'll give them another chance. Give them another chance. Yeah, that's enough. End of the game. I'll blow my whistle. Like It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, no. There's no integrity investigation required with soccer refereeing, Dave, and I, I, no. I'm prepared to offer you up your address for all of that. People would like to come and hunt you down. It's so arbitrary, it's ridiculous. But but again, if you look at other sports that set an example around, this is how long you've got. Weightlifting at mm. the Olympics. Yeah. They go out and the buzzer, you could be halfway through your squeezy... Through your clean and snatch. Your clean, um, as you opposed have, you to the... 200 um, kilos above your head. Uh, and then the siren goes off. That's oh, it. And it's just... It's, Bad luck. Be aware of it. Unlucky, yeah. And it's bad luck and get on with it. Or it's no lift and you can't dispute it. And, and one of the other things I was watching, again, on, on this Corn Ferry Tour event, um, one of the young lads hit a putt. And the putt, in fact, it was during the US Amateur, he hit a putt and the putt was teetering on the edge of the hole. Now, you've got 10 seconds to um, get to the ball and if it happens to fall in in that time, so be it. So given that it was hovering on the edge, what was his first instinct? I'll repair a pitch mark. So he watched it on the hole and then he looked straight down. Oh, well, there's a pitch mark right under my foot and repaired the pitch mark to slowly make his way to the, to the hole. And there was some conversation around if it had dropped in, what would happen? Well, it, mm. it ended up being... It only has 10, 10 seconds to drop anyway. Well, it's only got 10 seconds to drop, but, but the fact that they thought, well, maybe it's 10 seconds from the time I get to the ball. Well, um, why, and I don't why? even know what that rule is. Cause I, why would it be up to a professional golfer to fix a pitch mark? It's not, it's, not up to, it's not up to a professional bustle player to clean the sweat off the floor after he's fallen down. <laughs> or maybe it should be. We don't have Perhaps. professional pitch mark repairers. This well, is the reason that, could that be we the, wanted that, that, you. That could be a caddy's job. Just put the bag down. <laughs> well, so you're saying that, but I'm actually about to go the other way at the risk of disparaging caddies. Phil, if we want to quicken up the game, do we just get rid of caddies? <laughs> well, who's going to fix the if pitch you lose, marks? If, players, <laughs> if players lose that conversation, that over-the-top, four-minute conversation about which club to use, if players have to carry their own bags around and have... I think the game would be a lot more entertaining. No offence to any caddies listening. Um, it would certainly fix things at the Olympics if... Uh, certainly Olympic golf, players just need to carry their own bag. They need to be carry bags, and it would be a great promotion for all the carry bag manufacturers of the world as well. Um, but I think that the the issue around the pitch marks, Dev, is that... No, Dev, that's just not going to happen. The caddies have got a lot on. I mean, they've got to break the bunkers. <laughs> they've got to count. Like as Kipper had that challenge a few times, I mean, he had to he had to try and count backwards from 125 back to where Allenby's ball was. Got it wrong three times. There's three firings. Um, they've got to choose the wrong line, which the player can't well, hit on anyway. They've got a lot on, Dev. Having, having, having 
played around with you, Phil, at the Royal Melbourne and watching a line of greenskeepers um, shuffle along a green and pluck weeds out of it. I don't think uh, staffing is an issue at these top golf courses. So perhaps you could have a, a greenskeeper keeping an eye on uh, pitch marks throughout the day. You got to you got to repl- you got to repair your own pitch marks. It's just a part of the etiquette of the game that we love. Speaking of etiquette, we also don't refer to people plucking weeds at Royal Melbourne Dev. They were they were spraying. They you just were got yourself a six month ban, I reckon. That's not that's not a problem. I don't think there's much danger in me getting a game there in the no, next six months. Well, not anymore. But they were spot spraying power, and it's part of that dedication to perfection that is what sets Royal Melbourne apart from almost every golf course on earth. And I'll have you apologise right now for saying at Royal Melbourne they pluck weeds. Well, well, weeds don't grow at Royal Melbourne. The, the, the thing, when they all um, stood up to let us play, and and uh, that obviously there's obviously a standard of golf that plays at the Royal Melbourne because I, I think they should have stood a lot further back when I stepped up to the tee than they did. So now, Phil, your first game changer was an absolute stinker. Have you got any Thank more? You. I have got a gr- now. This is a this is truly a great game changer, and I want you to listen up. So, Champions Tour Shaw Classic. Uh, and we love the Champions Tour. I love watching our, our yesterday's heroes still flush it and get involved. Um, the the first tee announcer, now we used to love Ivor Robson or Ivor Davey as I call him often, but we used to love Ivor Robson. But the first tee announcer introducing Mike Weir had, yes. and anyone looks up the video, had swagger in his step and was almost the Ayatollah rock and roller declaration of here comes Mike Weir. And I thought... Imagine if your golf club, and yes, we'll deal with the private ones or public or otherwise, but one or two events, and maybe it's only one event every year, and maybe it's the doing it for Jared Golf Day, which golf clubs should be signing up for um, at a rate of knots because it'll tie the club together. But the starter, but the club pro or otherwise, announces each player with a little bit of pizzazz. He, you know, just throw up a couple of things that will bring the club together and get the laughter going and the joy and the smiles on the faces because you just never know what the announcer is going to say. And maybe it's the playing partners in the group that have to stitch you up as to what it was. Because I clearly remember the awesome player that was Hank Baran when I was playing at Kingston Links. And I may have told this story before, but I was playing with a mate of mine and Richard Green, the European Tour professional, uh, flusher, winner of the Dubai Desert Classic, uh, when he beat Greg Norman and Ian Woosnam. Anyway, Richard got introduced as Richard Drain, European Tour player, winner of the Dubai Desert Classic. Yeah, and and from the 15 or 16 people watching, believe it or not, there was some polite applause. Uh, and then my mate Champy got introduced as, I don't know, something that he'd achieved at some point in time because it certainly wasn't his golf swing. Um, and, and he had people watching. And then I stood up and I got introduced as the second longest player on the LPGA Tour. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by giggles through the microphone from everyone who was in the clubhouse, let alone from the people who were surrounding the first tee. It would be fair to say it didn't end up well, but, but it put a spring in the step because we were prepared to have fun with it of everybody else standing around the tee. And I just think as a game changer, it'll get the pro or the starter out from behind the counter gets everyone understanding or knowing a little bit more about who's playing in the day. And it also brings the club together. There's ideas of bringing and bonding a club together by starting everyone's day off with a laugh, which has been from Hollywell's theory about the first hole and the 18th hole on every golf course should be the easiest. So you start and end the day with a smile. It's a perfect, simple addition to get people off to a great day. Everyone echo the first team announcer at the Champions Tour Shaw Classic game 
changes. Like it certainly does lighten the mood and it adds a bit of fun to the spectacle. I, I, I do agree with you. You'd love that, wouldn't you, Dave? Yeah, well, I mean, I actually ironically read an article over the weekend about the, the start and the end of any event being the thing that you remember, the thing that you take with you. How would you like to be introduced, Dave? So you're on the first tee uh, and there's 65 people happen to be standing around. Um, and you rock up to the first tee, and what, what's your introduction? <laughs> um, what's my introduction? Um, uh, introducing Davin, we're going to give him three chances to hit his first tee. <laughs> <laughs> he gets to pick. He gets to pick one of three, and everyone turn around. <laughs> Start with the mulligan. What about you, shooter? I'd like the Benny Hill theme just to be playing as I walk up to the tee. <laughs> <laughs> Seems pretty. Appropriate. I'd like to get to the point where I would ask for. <laughs> Um, uh, the Alan Parsons project serious to play as I approach the tee, <laughs> Phil. Anyone that's a Chicago Bulls fan might might know what I'm talking about, just for dramatic effect. You know, I, but I do wonder, Phil. Like as much as we're having a bit of fun with it all, I wonder. I wonder if golf sometimes tries to be tries too hard to try and be one of the cool kids. Like, do we do we need little gimmicks and things like? And I don't mean this on, on its own because I think this is Ooh. quite a. I don't. I actually quite like the. You know. Thank you. Make make things nice and light, but do does golf? A serious question: Does golf try and make itself? Um, does it use gimmicks too often to try and remain relevant? Because for me, there's a, there's an element of test cricket about golf. Uh, you know, th- those who get it get it; those who don't don't. And you know, we shouldn't be changing the fabric of the game to suit those um, who don't appreciate it for what it is. I think if to your point, if I'm standing on the third tee and the Benny Hill music starts playing. Then I've got a I've got a problem because yes we, we don't have to keep changing the game to suit other things. And I don't mean what you've just I don't mean your game changer that you've just suggested, Phil. Yeah, yeah. as game changing as it would be. I, I it, just it mean is in, a game changer. Though. I just mean in general, do we look do we look too much to gimmicks to change golf or to, to highlight golf? Like like when we had oh, what is it probably fifteen years ago, maybe not quite that long, 10, 10 years ago they had down they had a like a surf classic or something down. Torquay way it might have been and every, and they had skateboard half pipes ramps and these sorts of things and it, and so they went from from golf being let's just say at one conservative and they've jumped it straight to 10 rather than finding what is attractive to golf or like do you, do you know what I mean oh, I do Dad, I do you, know what you, you, um, you don't it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like the Arnold Classic which was a fitness expo and to make it a sporting expo they started bringing in things like darts and you know, um, you know, bowls, bowls. And, and, were they darts so or were they, they, they syringes? A, a, a 300 kilo strongman. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you have a different kind of 300 kilo person <laughs> who's a dart thrower. Yeah. And it just didn't seem to work. It just didn't match. <laughs> I, I think there is a point. There's a, there's a purity to it, but it's about engagement and getting back to why people play. And the reality is we do play for fun and enjoyment and escapism. And um, and so there's a point where if we take it too seriously, if we take it too seriously and, and try and refine too many elements of it, but but um, control too many elements of it, then maybe it loses some of the fun um, as the game progresses, uh, as opposed to being able to celebrate it. And, and maybe that's, that's scaling back the specific rules and restrictions as opposed to bringing in novelty as an as a as a, a strategy but phil just very quickly you did touch on i know you sort of glossed over it a little bit the the um doing it for jared golf day but 
I really feel for for the charities at the moment. Are you boys in the same sort of boat with all these COVID lockdowns and the like? It's it's so difficult for these these guys to stay in front of mind when people are forced to close their businesses, work from home, um, homeschooling their kids, and, and struggling to pay their mortgage. It's bloody heartbreaking. Like these charities, like Challenge, supporting kids with cancer, they do God's work, and and they're being forgotten, losing so much money to charity, and that's why it's it's so important that to, to, to get behind and, and support the Doing It For Jared Day this year. So I just wanted to do a quick throw out for our, our charity of choice. But yeah, get on board, guys. Because they need every cent. The reality is, um, Shooter, I know that, that we could have left it there. They do need every cent they have. And when you think of the number of events that, that cancelled, and I was lucky enough to spend some time with the great man, His Royal Highness, Rogers. David Rogers, the CEO of Challenge. But They've had a lot of camps cancelled that they put on for kids. They were going to do a camp in country Victoria and effectively were told by the the area that it's just the risk is too high. I'm going to be polite to, to everybody and just say the risk is too high to be able to do it. Yet they need to keep performing these functions and keep doing all these other things. So there's a, there's a, a massive fundraiser coming up, which is the um, the Elby Charity, um, Charity Day at Yarra Yarra at the end of November. And anyone who's looking to get... Three, three or four people together to enjoy a game of golf, a great dinner at Crown. It's a fantastic, um, a really day. fun day. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic day where you get you get full of the the joy and the emotion and the pride of being both a contributor and also just being part of something bigger. Then then get behind it because you'll you'll benefit from it and everyone will benefit from it um, in ways that that will be beyond what you're what you're considering or what you're thinking. And on that note, let's bring today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast to a close. Be sure to sign up at golfbarons.com. Follow us on our socials, Insta, Facebook, and YouTube. And enjoy watching Golf Barons on KO and Foxtel On Demand. Thanks again for listening, Barons. And until next time, remember to add some swagger to your swing.